Welcome to Way Family Church. You're listening to our sermon podcast. Way Family Church is a new church plant in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to join us every Sunday morning at 1030 for worship, the word, and fellowship. If you would like more information, visit us online at wayfamily.church. Well, this particular chapter has been quite a pleasure for me to learn from. In fact, I've been so excited about it, I couldn't wait but to tell someone, like, I, I, hey, I learned, I've seen something, you know, and I can't wait to share it with you. But before I do, I want to teach you a word that you probably already know, but I didn't know this word, so I'm excited because I learned a new word. <laughs> the word is peripatea. Have you heard of that before? What is a peripatea, or the English form peripetery, or something like that? I barely speak English. <laughs> peripatea. Peripatea is a sudden reversal of fortune or change in circumstance. It is the plot twist. Chapter six is the plot twist. Many fictional writers incorporate peripatea into their stories again as the turning point the twist it advances a seemingly conclusive story into something interesting it advances the story right it puts the story forward for example how many of you guys watch star wars i think it's the empire strikes back luke skywalker swinging his lightsaber versus darth vader everything's going great but then he's being overcome by the enemy darth vader and then he kind of loses his hand. No, he doesn't kind of. He loses his hand, and it looks like, uh-oh, it's over, right? Plot twist, I am your father. No! Right? This guy who he's been fighting, whose arch nemesis turns out to be his dad? Plot twist. And because of that plot twist, George Lucas was able to advance the story. Okay? The next, the next episode, what was it? Uh, the Return of the Jedi... Another plot twist. Here's Darth Vader finally being uh, defeated, seemingly, right, by Luke Skywalker. And Emperor Palpatine shows up and lightning power, whatever you call that, force lightning, whatever. And it looks like Luke Skywalker is done for, right? The bad guys win. Vader stands up and he picks up Palpatine and he throws him down the abyss. Plot twist, Peripatea. That's what that is. I'll give you another... (laughs) Example of Peripatea in 2015, the Oscar Awards. You guys ever see those? You ever watch those? No, actually, it was 2017, the Oscar Awards. It was uh, Best Picture, I believe, and they accidentally crowned the wrong people. They gave the award to, uh, man, what was the name of that movie? Uh, I forget, but it wasn't supposed to be them. They were the runner up. And uh, plot twist, nope. I think it was Moonlight or whatever, actually deserved the award. And it was kind of embarrassing for those who received. They actually gave three, like, speeches. You know what I mean? Those speeches that you rehearse in case you win something. Three folks went and and did their acceptance speeches just to find out that there was a mistake and that award didn't actually belong to them. Plot twist, peripatea, that's what that is. See how excited I am to learn this new word? I'm trying to find a way to incorporate it in my regular diction, but I don't think that's one that's going to make it there very often. You know? But the whole point is that it's the, the, the turning point where you could say, man, I did not see that coming. Right? Chapter 6 is like that. 
It's where, how Michael Scott says is in the office, where the turns have tabled, right? <laughs> where the, the tables are turned and all the details finally come together. And in this particular chapter of Esther, and um, I'm telling you, I've been excited to learn from this, by God's sovereign providence, that which seems hopeless begins to take a turn and take on new light. And um, I'm going to be uh, transparent with you guys. I've been struggling through studying this. I feel like I've had obstacle after obstacle as far as preparing this week for this sermon. But any moment that I've had to prepare for it has been quite exciting. In fact, I think that this chapter really makes it easy to the degree where I felt like that's maybe why it was hard for me is because it's so straightforward. Like when you're preaching from narrative, sometimes it's like, how else can I say it? It's very well said, right? And so what I'd like to do is just go through it and show you this turning point in chapter six of Esther. And here, I think this is the main idea. We'll see that through the ordinary means of restlessness or sleeplessness, we'll see this in King Xerxes, and an unsatisfiable and disgusting desire for self-honor in Haman, God will turn the tables on the enemy and he will deliver his people, all right? This is the peripatea moment, the turning point. And so today's sermon title is that, The Turning Point, all right? Uh, and I'm excited to say this. So let, before we read chapter six, let's review really quick uh, what we read last week. Last week, we looked at two plans, a plan for salvation and one for destruction. Esther was moving forward with the plan for salvation. Haman had a plan to destroy the Jews and also Mordecai. In fact, he had the gallows built. All right. And I'm going to tell you something that you probably don't want to know. These gallows are not what you think of like Western gallows with hangman. You know what I'm talking about? Persian gallows are very different. It was actually just a pole with a very sharp tip. And so to hang someone is kind of to skewer them. Okay, and so he had this built, which is why he probably was able to build it so fast, because all it was, it was a 75 foot tall pole. That's what it was. And he's on his way to, to ask the king, because there's still someone with higher authority of, with, of, from, from him, to, to have Mordecai impaled, right? But Esther had successfully won the favor of the king. She actively was winning favor with the king. And we know that she was moving strategically forward with this plan. She was putting her life at risk. However, the Lord just poured his grace and favor over her. And so she prepared a banquet as part of her strategy to intercede for her people, the Jews, who were currently at risk for destruction. And Haman, again, had prepared this pole, these gallows, to execute Mordecai. Now, again, he had the gallows built. He had all the plan laid out for Mordecai. And he was probably excited or very ready. I don't even know if the man even slept because based on the timeline of the story, the guy shows up too early in the morning, if, in my opinion. All right. My, my wife would argue, yeah, that's definitely too early. I, that's not the first thing I want to do, right, is, is see someone when I'm waking up. And so Esther chapter six, this is where we are. Let's read this together. It says, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles and uh, the, the memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on the king, King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? 
And the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court, the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told, told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, ah, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we see here, Father. You're seeing that nothing is above you. Nothing is impossible for you, Lord Jesus. You can make anything happen whenever you want, and you do it for your glory and the good of those who love you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would minister to us, Lord. We're here, we're listening. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, how the turns have tabled, right? How the tables have turned. Now, there's several things going on here, but all of it is an expression or I would say a beautiful display of the providence of God. You've heard that word providence, yes? Let me define it for you. It is the act of providing or preparing for future use or application. So the Lord's providence is every little detail that he's been a part of. He's been putting the pieces together for such a time as this. That's the Lord's providence. And nothing, nothing has escaped him. In fact, he's been a part of every little moment. Everything that was addressed, everything that was forgotten was by his providence because the Lord is sovereign. You know what that means? He reigns. 
No one else rules above him. He rules. He commands all things to happen and to be placed where they need to be placed according to his will because he is sovereign. And in his providence, we delight. And, and that's something that we could be assured of is, you know, we, we may not know what's going on in the particular moment, in the present, right? But God is moving. He's putting the pieces together. He's doing something that even if he would tell us, we would not even believe it. You know, these people here, as I read this chapter, I don't think anybody could have anticipated this plot twist, this peripatia, right? See how I'm using that word now? Much smarter today. But God was moving all the pieces. Now, I know that we have heard this before, and I'm excited to share something about it, but hang on. Although there isn't a direct reference to the name of God in this book, all of it references him. His fingerprints are in everything. And today I might even actually argue that there might be some kind of directed reference to the Lord because I've been studying my Bible and I've been, I've been reading a little bit of the Greek version of this. You might wonder, you speak Greek and read Greek? No, I have some resources that help me do that. But I want to argue that the Lord is not only present in the background, but he's actually mentioned directly. And, and this is my argument to you, okay? And you can take it or leave it. But I'm excited to share that with you. You may say that Esther is the only book in which we do not see God, but we do see him. He's so obviously present here. He's all up in this story. You can't, you can't deny it, right? And so God is here. And this is something for us that's important to understand, important for us to know. God is present. He's always with us. He's always here, always responding to our need. He's seldom early, you've probably heard it said, but never late. He's always on time. And he's always so good and attentive to every single one of our needs. And this is just a beautiful expression of that. And so what I would like to share with you is a little bit of how the Lord provides in these circumstances, his, his providence, if you will. And so as part of the Lord's plan for salvation, which we've already begun to see, I want to consider how the Lord provides restlessness to the king. So providential restlessness, providential sleeplessness. What's another word for that? Insomnia. You would think that's a bad thing, right? But the Lord is providing all of these little circumstances for a greater purpose that only he has the ability to move forward. Verse one, it says, and on that night, Remember, Esther just had a banquet with Haman and with Xerxes, right? And Haman's boasting about the fact that he was the only one who was invited with the king. So he's just him, the king, and the queen. It doesn't get better than that. That night, remember, uh, 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 Xerxes asked the queen, Esther, what is it that you want? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. She said, come to the party tomorrow. I'll tell you then. So there's a little bit of a, a cliffhanger there, right? That night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, first, there's really not a good reason that we could see here for the king not to be able to sleep. There's, there's really maybe, maybe he's anticipating Esther's banquet. But as far as we can see and as far as the pictures painted around us, everything's fine as far as he's concerned, where the king stands, he's not really dealing with any conflict. Things are kind of going smoothly. And again, although there's a lot going on behind the scenes, most everyone is oblivious to what's happening. And I think this is important for us to understand. 
Esther had no idea what Haman's plans were for Mordecai. She had no idea. Mordecai didn't know what Haman's plans were for him either. He had no idea. Therefore, Esther and Mordecai were tied asleep that night. Haman didn't know about Esther's plan. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been so excited about it. And Haman, again, didn't know about his plan. And as far as the king is concerned, everything's good. Everything's flowing. Everything's fine. And so it's pretty clear that everyone here is clueless as to that other person's plan. This is how we know that God's moving. This is how we know that he's all up in this. And this is not man's doing. It is his Everyone was clueless, but God knew everything. And not only did he know everything, he's moving everything in the direction that only he could move it towards. Do you see that? And so again, while Esther and Mordecai were sleeping, God was not. Did you know that God doesn't sleep? God's always working. He's always moving. He's always doing something. He's always providing. His providence is everywhere. It's all up in the place. You know what I mean? It's just so awesome to know that our God is that awesome. (laughs) And he's always moving. So here it is. Xerxes couldn't sleep, though. Coincidence? I think not. It's providence. God was working through him in a way that no one else could. Everyone whom you'd anticipate to be the hero of this story at this point is asleep. Nowhere to be found. Not even in the picture. Not even in the scene. God is the one who's working. And again, this is a beautiful reminder that there's no one in this story, even the most powerful person in the empire who is in control at the time, quote unquote, in control. No one is actually in control of what, about, what is about to happen except for the Lord. And again, in spite of being given all the power of the Persian Empire as the prime minister, everything was given at his disposal. Haman's strat- or strategic plans were all turned against him simply because the king couldn't sleep. This is providential restlessness, sleeplessness. Now let me ask you this, what do you do when you can't sleep? It's annoying when you can't sleep, isn't it? What do you do? Do you open your phone and scroll, you know, on your phone? That actually wakes you up most of the time. I don't know what, why anyone would do that. It's just me. Do you turn the TV on? Do you watch TV? Take you, you take a pill? <laughs> All right. Or maybe you read a book. Or you wake up your husband. He's like, Shh, I can't sleep, right? Or, or maybe you have a sleepy music playlist on Spotify to help you sleep. <laughs> He doesn't have a husband, it's not fair. <laughs> we will all f- try to figure a way to sleep because sleep is important, right? Otherwise, it, it makes us crazy. Now, I personally don't experience a whole lot of restlessness. I hate to rub this in, but usually for me, as soon as I hit my, put my pillow on the, on the, or my head on the pillow, I'm out. Amen. I can do that, no problem. But every once in a while, I do experience restlessness. And when I do, it's because there's something in my heart or something is burning me. And I can't say this about my life the whole time, but recently the Lord has just really called me. I feel like I just need to pray at that moment, you know? And sometimes I actually pray myself to sleep. You know, I I don't even know if if that's a right thing where I'm talking to the Lord and I fade out, you know? But I do that. I pray myself to sleep. But here's the thing, though. Xerxes didn't do that. I, I can tell you, based on what I know here, he didn't 
pray himself to sleep. He didn't have a TV. He didn't have a way to play the white noise or the brown noise or whatever it is that you listen to. He didn't have a smartphone to scroll, you know, but he did have the Chronicles of the Kings. And so a lot of uh, theologians or I would say commentators argue that he maybe thought of this because he needed a boring book to put him to sleep, right? But I don't think that the Chronicles of the Kings were boring. In fact, he's essentially asking, hey, let me know what's going on in my reign. That's kind of like something that would probably excite him in my opinion. But this is what he does. He asks for the Chronicles of his reign, the book of memorable deeds. And so that's the second thing I want to consider. Let's consider the Lord's providence through record keeping, providential record keeping. It just so happens that he goes to this particular record in this particular night about this particular person. I can't tell you how long this book was read to him. I have no idea. I can't tell you if he, they just opened the book to that particular story and there it was, or if they were reading through it. But what I can tell you is this, verse two, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, the doors of the king, and who sought to kill him, who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. That piqued his interest. That was interesting. Now there's a story I didn't remember is what he's thinking. Yeah, forget sleep. Now he's excited about this story, right? Now, we're not told again how long they've been reading this, but at this point, it's been a few years since this event has happened. Mordecai, I'm pretty confident, was forgotten as, as, as in regards to this particular deed that he did. He did the right thing at this point, and he did not receive recognition. He did not receive reward. But now the king is reading about this. Praise the Lord that someone wrote it down because he would not have remembered this at all. In fact, based on his reaction, I would argue that he, he was clueless that this had even happened. And again, although Xerxes was looking for a sleepy time story, this was epic. This was like, what? What is this? Verse three, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, um, nothing has been done for him. This is a big deal, right? Remember last week we talked about the law of sowing and reaping, Galatians 6, 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Now, although it seems that, that the good that Mordecai had done for King Xerxes was unrecognized and forgotten at the moment, we can surely say that it was unrecognized and forgotten. But here's the fact of the matter is God never once forgot. In fact, he intended that that recognition will not happen in that moment for such a time as this. Because he's moving, he's orchestrating everything and everything according to his perfect will and timing. Praise God for that. Praise God that he knows the bigger picture. Because if we were up to us, we'd be making all kinds of mistakes left and right, wouldn't we? And so this is the beginning of the turning point. Psalm 27, 14 says this. This is a word for us to be encouraged by. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Is there something you're waiting for? Mordecai was probably waiting for some kind of answer. He's desperate for the salvation of the Jews. He's a Jew, right? He's praying for Esther. He still has no news as far as how that banquet is going. Wait for the Lord. 
He's moving. We can count on him. Lamentations tells us why. 3, 25 through 26. Because the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Quietly. The Hebrew is dumam. That's to deliberately be still. It's a patient silence. It's a confidence of knowing that something is going to happen. And so you could say, it is good that one should wait patiently for the Lord, for the salvation that comes from the Lord. Amen. And so again, I do know and I believe that some of us are in a time like this, a time of waiting, a time of silence, perhaps, where we don't even know what, there's really nothing for us to do but wait. That's okay. That's good. Waiting for the Lord is a good thing. Waiting for Him to show up is awesome because when the Lord shows up, oh, I love the way that He shows off as well, you know, because He's awesome. So be assured, God oversees not only eternal rewards, but the earthly recognitions too. He, 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 he oversees that as well. So take heart, perhaps that which you were not recognized for, then will come eventually. Maybe it's being saved for a better moment in the future where that recognition does not only honor you, even though you're probably not worthy of it, but it glorifies him through you, which is a much greater honor for you to glorify and magnify the name of the Lord. Amen. Everything that we do should be for that purpose, to bring him glory. Now, in this case, God's providential sleeplessness or restlessness and providential record keeping made sure that, there had, that, that, that what had been ignored in the past was addressed at this particular night so that the enemy would be humbled before him. And here's the thing I want you guys to know if you didn't know or to be reminded of, if you have forgotten, even Satan bows at the feet of God today. And he does nothing which the Lord does not allow. We have two beautiful examples and more, but one in Job where Satan demands of him. He has to go and ask for Job, right? And the Lord permits him certain things and there's certain lines that he draws. But let me show you a New Testament example because this happens today still. Luke 22, 31 through 32, Jesus says this to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In other words, I talk to the Father and to the Spirit about this demand from Satan. And we, the Lord, said, no. Demand denied. And so even Satan has a line that he cannot cross. Even he has a greater authority that he has to submit to. Ooh, I love that. I'm getting goosebumps. I'm so grateful that the Lord, my God, is the biggest one. You know, you've always heard it said, there's always a bigger fish, yes? Now, aren't you glad that the highest authority is good and he's loving and he's benevolent and he's compassionate and he's just and he is God? That's the big fish we're talking about here. And so let's consider this next thing, this providential authority, because even in this story, we see the big fish, right? We see the providential authority, the one who is higher from him who has the intention to destroy. Verse 4 through 5 says this in chapter 6, And the king said, 
who's in the court after reading about Mordecai? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here, standing in the court. And the king said to him, let him come in. I promise you this. Ham or Xerxes was not interested in what Haman had to say. No, he told him, have him come in because I need to consult with him about something. And so at no moment was Xerxes thinking, I want to hear why Haman is here. It doesn't even matter. It just so happens that Haman was there in the middle of the night or maybe at morning at this time. Remember, the king's supposed to be asleep, right? And there's Haman, probably really excited about what he wants to do, wants to just get it over with before Esther's banquet. And Xerxes just wants to say, hey, bring him in. I have something to say. I, ha I have something to talk to him about. How perfect timing, right? It talk about timing. The timing is impeccable. And Xerxes, again, uh, is being informed that nothing has been done for Mordecai. And the perfect person walks in. Haman. And just the way that this conversation moves forward, in my opinion, I'm like, God, you're amazing. Like, wow, what an epic turn of events, right? And again, Haman walked in to ask Xerxes for permission to kill Mordecai in haste. He couldn't wait first thing in the morning. So let's examine, self-examine really quick, because there's always something for us to learn. Here's one thing that I've been guilty of a lot. And just in case someone else is as well, too often we're quick to consider ourselves to be the hero of the story. When we read the stories of the Bible, we say, I'm David, I'm Samson, I'm the hero, I'm the victor, God is for me, who could be against me? But the reality is that sometimes we behave more like the villain. And so it's important for us to self-examine because remember, our nature is sinful. And so we need the Lord to refine us, to sanctify us. And so let's take a moment to self-exam here for a second and use Haman as the example here. And let's ask ourselves or ask yourself, what am I pursuing with much anticipation and haste? What's keeping me up that I'm really trying to get to? And am I pursuing something godly or something sinful? That's very important for us to consider and evaluate. How do I know if it's something godly? Is it righteous according to the word of the Lord? Is it good according to his will? Again, according to the word of the Lord. Is it in faith? Does it benefit the expansion of God's kingdom? Does it glorify the Lord? Does it magnify his name? Does it help bring someone from, life, from death to life? This is how you know if it's godly. How do I know if it's sinful though? Is it detrimental to others? Is it selfish? Is it self-exalting? Is it contrary to the law of the Lord? Is it for the purpose of self-glorification and not for the Lord's glory? Let's think about it. It's good to take a moment and just self-examine every once in a while. Haman came in with sinful plans. And unfortunately for him, there was someone with a higher authority. This is God's providential authority that was placed in this moment for such a time as this. This was someone that Haman had to submit to Xerxes, who was still the king of Persia. And God was unexpectedly turning things around. And these two guys were entirely clueless. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? They were totally part of the plan, but not even aware of what the plan is. 
And so let me ask you this, just considering Haman's situation here a little bit further. Have you ever had something to ask someone like where you go to someone because you have something that you want to process with them and that person suddenly turns things around on you and they tell you things and then you never get around to actually saying what you had to say? That was my experience a lot with my parents. You know, it's like well, as a teenager, especially, I would go to my parents. It's like I have to ask them something. I want to do something. I've already conspired and planned it in my head. I know exactly what I'm going to say. And boom, they come out with a totally different plan. And I can't even do it in the first place. And I never had the chance to even say what I wanted to say because the higher third authority just trumped me. Right. This is exactly what Haman is experiencing. And I just... I just, I, I want to consider this next thing, actually, move, move the story along because this is one of my favorite parts. I want to consider now God's providential irony. It's ironic. It's so funny how this comes to be here in the scriptures. Let's look at verse 6 through 11. It says this, so Haman came in and the king said to him, hey, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, what a dummy, by the way. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Wow, it doesn't get any cockier than that, does it? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, look at this. It's, it's, I don't think it's the first time he's considered this. It's like he's having a montage moment. You know what I mean? And he's, he's thought about this. It's like he's dreamed about this before. And so now here it is, the opportunity. It's actually going to happen, is what he's thinking. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let him lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Do you know what he just described? Any, any bells ringing? This is what you would do to proclaim the next heir of the kingdom. This is what you would do to proclaim the next king, the arriving king. This is kind of like a Palm Sunday moment. Do you see that? You see Haman's delusional, wicked desire for self-glorification? He's essentially telling the king, you know what you should do? You should parade him as the heir of the king. I would not put it past Haman to actually push the buttons far enough to even be in position to assassinate the king himself. I wouldn't put that past Haman. I wouldn't put him past him to actually desire the throne itself. No promotion would be ever sufficient for him. And so he describes this, this receiving of the kingdom as an heir. <laughs> and to his surprise, the king says in verse 10, hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. In other words, you're that noble official who's gonna do that. Now, I don't know if you've ever been surprised like that, but when that happens to me, I break out in a sweat immediately and I feel like I go pale. It's like, that's, that's embarrassing and that's humiliating. And this is the irony. Isn't it ironic that he thought that this was all going to be for him and it actually turns out to not just be for someone else, but the very man whom he had planned to kill that day? That's funny, <laughs> you know? And so again, here's the thing. There's always this higher authority. And here, 
I want us to really, really think about this and consider this because I really hope that we don't make our relationship with the King of Kings, with the Lord of Lords, so much about ourselves that we are so quick to assume that he wants to honor me, that he, he wants to like, just bestow his power on me because I'm so important, I'm so great, and I'm so wonderful, and he needs me, and I'm just so amazing for his kingdom. I hope that we don't think of ourselves that way with our relationship with God because we can see how this really turned against Haman because God will not be mocked. He is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. He is the ultimate authority. And so first, the only one who is truly great, who's truly that important, who's truly worthy of all high honor is God himself. We are created by him. We are put in this earth for such a short time. We serve him for a while and that in itself is an honor for us, to us. And, and then we die. And then we get to be with him and his, sharing his glory. But there's nothing about us that is even worthy or deserving of any honor. God is the only one who is because he is from eternity to eternity. Look at Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever had you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So everything that we do and say should be with God in mind, him, him being Lord over all. He is sovereign. He is, over, he is the, the final authority. And it is by his grace that any good comes from us in the first place, not our own doing. Second, the Lord doesn't owe us anything. Therefore, we shouldn't assume that we're deserving of glamorous recognition. He doesn't owe us anything. Anything that we have is a gift. It's grace. We should be nothing like the Pharisee that Jesus describes in that, in that story where he says in Luke 18, 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I thank you that I don't gossip. I thank you that I'm better than them. I thank you that my kids dress nicer than those kids. You know, whatever it is that we think about, we sometimes are very often like this Pharisee, but instead we should be like the one who says in Luke 18, 13, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who I am. You're not, don't be acting like Haman. Haman's a fool. We should be amazed at God's goodness towards us. We shouldn't be demanding of it. I would love to tell you a story about that, but for the sake of time, we'll put it in our back pocket for later. Luke 17, 10, the Lord says this, when you have done all that you have commanded, that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's humility. That's beautiful. That's what the Lord is honored through. Just be humble. Be far from us that we would spawn like Haman, prideful and delusional, thinking that we're deserving of any honor and any glory and any praise. Now the Lord will do what the Lord will do with us. If he wants to honor us, praise God and be grateful for that. If he wants to glorify us in any way, shape or form according to his will, praise God, be grateful for it. But we truly aren't deserving of this. I'm a sinner. The Lord will not be mocked. Now, obviously, Haman had thought of being honored in this way, and he was very specific, didn't, wasn't he? And he craved this promotion. And so let me ask you this. What do you desire more than anything else? 
What takes priority over everything and everyone in your life? What do you crave? Only God is worthy of a passionate pursuit. I'm going to challenge you to memorize remember this from James, the brother of Jesus, leader of the church in Jerusalem. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Amen? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let the Lord exalt you, not yourself. Amen? Finally, verse 12 through 13, let me uh, consider this providential insult, and this is the last one we'll see here. 12 says, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered, shamed. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Ouch! He's already embarrassed. He's already humili hum humiliated, amen? And then add in, uh, injury to insult. So this is the providential insult. Not only, again, was he humbled by parading Mordecai, the guy who he hated the most, with the highest honor he can, he can really have, but he, also became, uh, uh, but he also became insulted, essentially, by his wife's counsel and his wife. And they said to him, before, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people, this is what I'm really excited to share with you. You will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. In other words, you can't win because God is on his side. Wait, what a minute. Wait a minute. Is that maybe a direct reference to God? This is where I think so. Look at this word Jewish people. Jewish people or the word Jew comes from the word Judah. In fact, it's Jude to be more specific, meaning a descendant of Judah. The word Jew was synonymous with worshiper of Yahweh. That's what it was. You couldn't be a Jew and not be associated with Yahweh, God. That's the name of God. And so this is my argument for God being present in this passage. He says, she says, essentially, if God is on his side, you're done for. You can't beat him. He's amazing. And so here's the thing. A Jewish person, if he is of Jewish people, it is to say there are worshipers of God directly. They're indirectly, directly stating God. <laughs> Does that make sense? Because it's kind of like, okay, my favorite NFL team is the Chargers, okay? If I say you are a Charger, that implies that you are a part of that Chargers team. If you are Jew, that implies that you're a worshiper of Yahweh. That's what it is. And so here she is acknowledging God and saying, if he is of God, you're, you're, you're done. I hate to tell you, man, this is like the worst wife ever. I'm telling you, she's weird. Like, she does not say good things, you know? Like, this is really discouraging. If my, if my wife talked to me like this all the time, it's like, bro, you lose. <laughs> oh, so I find it fascinating, my personal opinion, that even this creepy, heartless woman recognizes the sovereign God. She recognizes that God cannot be defeated. And, and this is why this is just adding injury to insult. This is a form of insult to Haman. Well-deserved, in my opinion. <laughs> it's like not humble of me at all. And this is all by the providence of God. Romans 8, 38 through 39. Paul reminds us 
of a promise by the power of the God in saying, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he is powerful, he is mighty, and nothing else can overcome him, period. He is the ultimate authority. And just to, again, add injury to insult, verse 14 therefore says, while, say while, while, that's a time word, right? While they were talking with him, with Haman, the king's eunuch arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. In other words, Haman didn't even have time to process anything. Haman was humiliated and he was being pretty much insulted by his friends and family at the time. While that was happening, he didn't have a plan to think of the next step. He didn't have a plan to re-strategize. He did not have a plan to do anything. In fact, he didn't even have the ability to think of the, king, the queen's banquet that he was supposed to be at. So while that was happening, he's taken, in other words, you can't get away now, Haman. You're done. You're done for. The Lord has moved in his providence. The Lord has just done the impossible. Oh, how the tables have turned. Amen. Amen. I love this. Haman's pride was obliterated. He went from boasting about his status and how only he and the king was invited to the queen's banquet to totally forgetting about it. Humiliated. Again, Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. There's truly nothing like our God's providence only he's truly awesome. Only, only he's on all of the details and only he has the perfect plan for salvation through Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. A peripeteia indeed. Isn't that a fun word? Like the Miss Universe pageant in 2015. Do you guys remember that? Where Steve Harvey accidentally named the wrong winner. He mistakenly crowned Miss Columbia. And boy, does she look happy for a while. Miss Columbia's, she just pridefully celebrated there briefly, only to have the crown removed to be rightfully placed on the head of Miss Philippines. And so as we think about this reversal of honor from Haman to Mordecai, I'd like to end with this message, with assuring you to encourage you that even though it may seem that Satan is being honored above all right now in this world, in this day and age, it seems like people are just blatantly open about that, about sat satanic worship. And so it may seem that he is ruling, right? I want to remind you and assure you of this. The crown is on Jesus. And that will not be reversed. That was not a mistake. Amen? His crown will not be removed. And his victory over sin and death on the cross will never, ever expire. Philippians 2, 9 through 10, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And even when you cannot see him or hear him or feel him and you think he's absent and you think, God, I'm, I'm, I'm doomed here. Help me. Where are you? Where are you, God? He does not sleep. He's accomplishing his purpose. He's accomplishing his good providence, right? His provision, his 
providential, all these circumstances, he's moving in them for your good and his glory. And as Jesus said to the father who found himself in desperation about his daughter in Mark 5.36, this word is also for you, and I'll leave you with this. Do not fear, only believe. And we have enough to have that confidence, that assurance of faith that God is moving for our good and his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Lord, we are just moved by how you work and how truly you are so above us that even when we're unaware of what you're doing, you're doing something beautiful. And so I pray, Father, that you would remind us of that every moment, Lord Jesus, that we would not be discouraged, but that we would be able to sleep knowing that you're working behind the scenes. And that we would have the confidence, Lord Jesus, that regardless of what happens, it's going to be good. If, if recognition or reward is delayed, it's a good thing. And we trust that you're doing something amazing, Lord Father, for your glory. And Lord, that everything that we do would glorify you, not, not for our self-glory, Lord, but for you. So help us grow in that place. And thank you for your grace and the sacrifice that comes from your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the victory and the crown on his head that will not be removed ever. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.